0: Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm your host, Jack Llewellyn, and thank you for joining again. Uh, Tonight we're going to have a fun topic, I think, and an interesting one. Tonight's uh, episode is titled, The Interrogation Tapes, The Who, What, and Why. I've worked on the camera in a case in one form or another since 1990. And during that 32-year period or so, I've had numerous conversations about the case, an incalculable number of conversations about the case. And the number of times somebody's had a point or a theory or an idea, and somebody else in the conversation has said, yeah, but what about the interrogation tapes? uh i i couldn't count the number of those cases and so for me over the last particularly the last 25 years or so uh the interrogation tapes were really kind of the enduring mystery and provided some of the most lasting questions so tonight we're going to try to you know jump into that mystery and answer some questions probably raise a few more, and uh, hopefully do it in a way that's a little bit interesting. So we're going to start a little bit, uh, as opposed to the who, what, and why, we're going to go the what, the who, and then the why. Um, And so we're going to start off just talking about the interrogation tapes themselves. So as we know, uh, Agent Camarena was abducted on February 7, 1985. And that his body was recovered. Along with that of Captain Zavala. About a month later. So sometime after Camarena's body was recovered and identified. The CIA learned that the Mexican government. Or factions of the Mexican government. Or people in the Mexican government. Had possession of audio tapes that apparently were recordings of some or all of Kamerina's interrogation. Sometime around April of 1985, the CIA apparently informed the DEA administration about the existence of these tapes. In his book, Jaime Kirkendall says that he first became aware of their existence on April 16, 1985, when he had a phone call with Walter White, who at the time was the assistant agent in charge of the DEA's office in Mexico City. Now, Kirkendall goes on to say that there was a note from the CIA that indicated that the person who had been interrogated on these tapes had referred to a Jesus Ramirez. And Kirkendall knew that that was an alias for a confidential informant who had worked with uh, both Kirkendall and Camarena. Kirkendall also says that that was an alias that was known to no one other than the two of them. And so from that... uh, He was able to surmise that it was in fact, uh, it was in fact agent Camarena who was on the tapes. Um, once the recordings were actually recovered by the CIA and then turned over to the DEA, it became clear that the voice on the recordings was in fact that of agent Camarena, um, Most people who've listened to the tapes say that the interrogators had Mexican accents, and they note, which I think is important, that the interrogation was conducted entirely in Spanish. Uh, And I think that's important, and we'll talk about it later, because as we know, uh, Agent Camarena was bilingual, uh, and the fact that nobody spoke to him in English is... uh, may say something about who was doing the interrogation. At one point, uh, the CIA received a transcript of the interrogation, um, and it was a 43-page transcript, but it wasn't until the end of August in 1985 that the DEA received copies of the tapes themselves from the Mexican government. The tapes themselves were plain audio cassettes, Five in total, and they were each identified as copias or copies. Copia number one was a short recording of radio traffic that had been recorded from the DEA's radio in Guadalajara. Copias two and four were recordings of uh, Agent Camarena's interrogation. Copia three was the interrogation of an entirely different person, uh, not unrelated, but uh, not not really important in connection with uh, this discussion. And then Copia five was a tape that was almost completely unintelligible, but was later determined to be another copy of Copia four. So you really end up with two tapes. Uh, copious 2 and 4 that are recordings of Agent Cameron's interrogation what's interesting though is that the interrogation transcripts originally provided to the CIA don't correspond uh, in any material way to any of the five tapes that were obtained by the DEA And as we'll talk about a little bit later, that gives an enormous opening to say that there are other tapes, other tapes that the CIA might have had access to, that the Mexican government had access to, but that the DEA has never seen and which we don't have transcripts of. Um, And the one thing that's very clear based upon uh, even this brief history of the interrogation tapes, is that there's absolutely no chain of custody. And so if you are, you know, trying to determine who had access, who could have manipulated the tapes, if they were manipulated at all, um, it's really, it's wide open. It's a crapshoot because they're really, at least until the DEA got a hold of them in August of 85, there, were, there was no real custody or control. The, uh, the interrogation tapes get transferred from Guadalajara to Washington, D.C., and at that time, a DE agent by the name of David Herrera is one of the first people to listen to the tapes, and he does a transcription uh, later on, we'll talk about uh, Agent Herrera in a little little bit. Later on, the tapes are also listened to by two other DEA agents, uh, Dale Stinson and Bobby Castillo, and both of them notably had had communications with or dealt with or interacted with Caro Quintero in the past, and they both said that They believed, uh, and, and Mr. Stinson says he's absolutely certain that Carlo Quintero's voice is on the interrogation tapes, uh, as one of the interrogators of agent Camarena. We know, um, and we're going to talk about who in a little bit, but we know that, that there were several interrogators, um, At least three voices identified. If you listen to the tapes, it's extremely hard to understand who's saying what. Um, As the interrogation tapes go on, at the beginning, there seems to be a little bit more of an orderly pattern to the investigation or to the interrogation. There seems to be one person who's largely in control, um, potentially even a... a, um, police official, because there's a little bit of a professionalism associated with it. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, But then later on, voices are are over the top of one another. In one of the Zuno trials, there were some witnesses who tried to separate out the voices. But it becomes very, very difficult to determine uh, who's saying what, uh, how many interrogators there were, uh, and, and things like that. What I can tell you is, if you look in the DEA six reports and the people who uh, were interviewed, um, either witnesses or informants, or uh, you, you know people who had been arrested and gave statements, you can identify at least nine different people who are pointed at as having participated in the interrogation. Uh, I'm not sure that all nine show up on, on the tapes. I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting it's very difficult to determine who exactly was doing the uh, interrogations. I have copies of what I think are all or virtually all of the transcripts of the interrogation tapes. And it's, it's interesting when you start looking through them, and really looking at what's being asked. Who are they talking about? What are they referencing? And there's a couple of things that really come up. Um, one is there is a lot of questioning about the homes and businesses and activities and offices and associates of Carl Quintero, uh, Miguel Felix on, uh, Angel Gallardo. Uh, and Ernesta Fonseca. So as you would expect, kind of the the big three as uh, as they're known. And so lots of questions about how do they know who lives where, whose offices where, uh, you know, a variety of things of that nature. They also have a great deal of questions about sources of information. Uh, you know where did it, did the DA get certain information? Who were they talking to? How were they identifying things? Um, so, you know, again consistent with at least for that portion, the idea that the cartel was looking to understand how they were getting information, how the DA was getting information. <coughs> Excuse me. And then there's a lot of questions relating to the raid on Buffalo. And we've talked about that in the past and how big of a raid it was. But a lot of questions on how it came about, who knew about it, and things of that nature. So homes, businesses, and associates of, of Caro, Felix, and Fonseca sources of information, and Buffalo. Um There's also some questions about the DEA agents themselves, <clears throat> who, um, who they interacted with, their cars, and things of that nature. Um, but that's really the vast, vast majority of the discussion points that you can really understand and pick up on. Certainly not suggesting that there aren't other areas of inquiry, but those are the the primary ones. There's two names that come up in the interrogation that I don't think we've really talked about much and I think are important. So one is Javier Barber Hernandez, and we will talk about him more in a later episode. But Javier Barber Hernandez was a former uh, attorney who turned into... Uh, an attorney for the traffickers and then became a trafficker himself. And in the interrogation tapes, Camarena says that the information he was getting was that Javier Barba was on the rise, that Javier Barba didn't uh, like being, uh, you know, kind of an underling to Caro and, and Fonseca in particular, and uh, that that uh, he was one... To watch out for and, and one to fear. The other thing is there are a number of references likely to El Sami, and we talked about uh, Sami Ramirez Razo, who almost undoubtedly was actually involved in the the kidnapping of Camarena personally. Uh, he had worked with both Caro and Fonseca, primarily with Fonseca, but um, with both of them, and uh, the references to him reinforce the idea that Sammy was uh, a top lieutenant of the traffickers, and somebody that if you're going to have someone go pick up, somebody like Cam that's the kind of person that you would send. It's also interesting to talk about what's not, not on the tapes. And put aside the idea that there may be tapes that aren't there. We'll talk about that. But um, let's talk about who's not on the tapes. If you just read through the transcripts, what's not on the tapes? Number one, there's no discussion regarding the CIA. None. None. And I'm going to let that sink in for a second. No discussion about the CIA. That's number one. Number two, we've talked about that the ranch at Rancho Veracruz and the allegations that Rancho Veracruz was a ranch that was owned by Carlos Quintero and that the uh, CIA trained Nicaraguan rebels on Rancho Veracruz. That planes flew in and out of Rancho Veracruz, transporting guns, drugs, uh, and other uh, supplies for the Contras. I mentioned this last week, and I'll bring it up again. In the interrogation tapes, Camarena at one point, while being questioned about Buffalo, makes a an oblique reference to something in Veracruz. The first response... Is not what's Veracruz? What do you know about Veracruz? What do you know about the ranch? What do you know about the Contras? It is shut up, asshole. I I think it's a quote. Tell me about Buffalo. Okay, so what we know is nothing about the CIA, and at least in that portion of the tape, the interrogators having no interest at all. In Veracruz, interestingly enough, and this will tie into when we we look at the why, the names of Mexican government officials, politicians uh, military officials they're not there there's very little, if any, discussion about them at one point kind of like he did with Veracruz, um Cameron says something about information they got about General Gardoki and it's completely disregarded. There's no follow up, there's no continuation, there's nothing. And you know when when we start talking later on in the case, you know, about uh the the allegations mostly from uh Godoy and Lopez Romero, but also Cervantes of these, these, uh, conspiracy meetings, these meetings to talk about picking up the agent, picking up Camarena, you know, you've got Bartlett Diaz and Gardoki and others like that, and they're not on these tapes, okay? They don't talk about them in any great detail. What else isn't on the tapes? Um... By and large, the torture that Agent Camarena suffered is not on the tapes. And the assumption generally is that they would ask questions, turn off the tapes, torture him for a while, and then turn back on the tapes when he was then able to to talk again. Uh, When I say most of the torture is not there... There are still plenty of times when you can tell that um, that he's being hit or he'll say something along those lines of, ouch, or please don't hit me. Uh, you can also tell, even just reading it, as you go along, it becomes clear the number of unintelligible notes um, or passages or things that they can't understand that Cameron is saying. So <clears throat> uh, he certainly is in worsening condition but there's really not a whole lot of the what you would call the hardcore um inter- or uh, torturing that's on the tapes what else isn't on the tapes and we talked about this when we did our top 10 things that uh the last NARC gets wrong there is nothing on the interrogation tapes the transcripts that are available where Agent Camarena gives up Captain Zavala. Nothing. It's not there. Uh, And as we know, uh, Agent Breyes has alleged several times that that's what happened. It's in his book that on the second day, not the first day, the second day, he gives up Zavala, and then Zavala is picked up, notwithstanding the fact that that's totally contrary to all of the witness testimony. But there's nothing in the tapes that supports that. Again, if Agent Breas or anyone else has evidence that supports that contention, we'd love to see it. I'll be happy to share it with absolutely everybody, um, but we haven't seen it yet. And have no reason to believe it exists because, again, it's contrary to all of the physical evidence. So now we've talked a little bit about the the what. Let's talk about the who. As I mentioned earlier, um, a couple of things important. We have several voices. Um, we have allegations of several people who participated in it. Uh, which makes it difficult. As I noted, there's... There's a kind of a different tone at the beginning of the interrogations. It's a little more civil. It's a little more orderly. It sounds more like, or it reads more like, something a police officer would do. Um, There's a rhythm to it. There's a method to it. The other thing that's interesting is at one point... Agent Camarena refers to the interrogator, again this more professional interrogator, as commandant, and you can think that that could possibly say a couple of things. It could um, it could refer to a position, or it could just be a sign of respect, um, or. You know, a, a, a combination of both where there's a, a, an element of respect because of a position, and Cam is trying to endear himself a little bit to this person who's interrogating him and obviously holds his life in his hands. As I also mentioned, you'll note um, in reading the tape or the transcripts that it changes over time. As they go on, they become much less orderly. The they, Interrogation becomes way more chaotic. You have two or three people talking at the same time. Somebody who listened to the tapes back, you know, in 1985-ish, told, and this was um, somebody from uh, within the Mexican government, had told uh, Jaime Kirkendall that one of the interrogators sounded like Art Rodríguez. which means um, a northerner, in the sense that Art was from Calexico. And there is a different accent, a different way of speech for Mexicans who are from the Calexico-Mexicali area. Interestingly enough, Thomas Morlet, who was a DFS official, is from Mexicali. And as you probably know, there's some interesting things about Morlet. And Morlet was um, identified in uh, the last NARC in, in a couple of ways that are, uh, that are interesting. I'm not necessarily suggesting that, uh, that all of those were correct. But there's a couple of things that, that we really want to note about Morlet. So one is if you read um, Mr. Kirkendall's book, you'll see that um, at one point he found out um, or got information from a witness who said um, that um, Morlett was responsible for uh Camarena being picked up and that it was more um traffickers his his workers who were involved something else that becomes interesting is that um in or on February 27, 1985 okay so um 20 days after the uh the abduction of agent Camarena Francis Mullen, who was the departing head of the DEA at the time, um, talks to a news reporter from UPI and discusses the investigation. And in that, he says, um, amongst other things, that four people had been arrested in connection with the kidnapping. And then he says the arrested suspects include the purported mastermind, Thomas Morlett, And three former Mexican federal agents. Now we know that Morlett was picked up in, I believe it was in Tijuana. And quickly released because he was DFS and they couldn't hold him. But I've always found it interesting that uh, the head of the DEA would make a statement to the press of that nature without having some... Uh, interesting information. And so you end up with this situation where there's, um, you know, you've got this Morlet guy hanging around, uh, who clearly is a DFS official, a DFS commandant, um, and uh, people after the fact pointing some fingers at him, but no real evidence to tie him together. And moreover, Prior to the kidnapping, the DEA had almost no information about him. So if you go through the DEA 6s, both um, immediately after and uh, previous to the kidnapping, you'll see nothing about Morlet. So it seems unlikely that it, that he was directly involved. On the other hand, you just never really know. Uh, Morlet was killed... Uh, he, he was shot in the the uh, entryway to a restaurant. Lots of different discussions about how that occurred. It may have just been uh, two bad guys shooting each other. Maybe it was something more nefarious. Uh, you know, Morlet would be somebody that you'd love to investigate more if there was really a way to do, to do that. Carl Quintero. Was Carl Quintero on the interrogation tapes? We know that both Dale Stinson and Bobby Castillo say, yep, I identified his voice. I think we talked in the past that Dale Stinson said that he had actually gone to meet with Carol Quintero at a prison shortly after he and Fonseca were jailed, uh, that he was talking to Fonseca. Carol Quintero came up behind him and started yelling at him. And Stinson says something to the effect that that was one of the few times in his Uh, career where he really feared for his life and his response is you know what that's a that's a voice you'll remember Uh, so you know I think it's it's safe to or at least um, reasonable to assume that both Stinson and Castillo are correct and that uh, Carl was on the tapes I'll note that in some of the, the testimony at trial, and Castillo talks about this a lot more at trial than Stinson did, but they identify certain passages that where they say they think it's Caro's voice. There's some of them where, um, and, and it's a little bit hard because you've got to get the numbering system of the right tape and the right line and everything else, but it appears when you look at it that some of the time the interrogators are talking about Carl had of in been the third person, asking questions, you know, well, what about Carl? And so um, I don't think Carl was somebody who referred to himself in the third person very often. So I'm not sure that all of the uh, specific instances really are Carl, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't him on some of them. What else isn't, um, or what else might we find from the tapes as regarding the who? Not one person ever, ever who had listened to the tapes has said at any time, you know what? One of those voices sounds different, one of those accents sounds different. One of those interrogators has a Cuban accent. And what's interesting is, amongst other things, David Herrera's son-in-law is of Cuban descent. And while certainly no one who listened to the tapes 35 years ago or more is going to say, yep, I guarantee you, nobody had a, a Cuban accent. But nobody talks about it. Okay? Okay. Nobody says it happened. Nobody at the time notes it. Not one person. No one. um, Going back to something we talked about earlier, I also find it really interesting that nobody asks him any questions in English. There's never any English discussions. And, And I put this in my book. But, you know, can't you just envision... If there was somebody who spoke English and was fluent in English and knew Camarena was, at some point getting down in front of him, looking him in the eye and speaking English and saying, you know, in essence, cut the crap, you know, protect yourself, save yourself here, tell us the truth. And maybe as an interrogator, that could be a very powerful thing, you know, to all of a sudden be talking in English. And that doesn't happen at all, which makes... Me wonder if any of the interrogators really were fluent in English. I'll note that in addition to having a Cuban accent, Felix Rodriguez, if you've seen any of the press, uh, any of his testimony, know that he is fluent in English. All right, so that's the who. Let's talk for a couple of minutes. About the why, and, as I said, for a long time, I really, really got hung up on the why. Why would you tape this? Why? And there's a couple of of primary theories. Probably the most longstanding theory is they were doing it to give to government Mexican government officials. So, kind of piggybacking on um, the highly fictionalized version of it in uh, Narcos, Mexico, but the idea that the uh, congressional investigation group had come down, looked into things, hadn't really done anything, but that that really started to create some fear amongst the Mexican government officials who were in bed with being paid off by working with, the traffickers, and that in order to kind of figure out what the government knew, they ordered um, or encouraged Camarena to be picked up. The The thing that doesn't make sense with that uh, it, it is two things. One is, again, when you really look at the interrogation, let's say it's for the Mexican government officials, then why do they spend so much time talking about you know, Felix's office, Carl Quintero's house, how do you get to places? People asking for directions because they don't know the area as well. Um, and and not have a lot more about what do you know about the the government officials' involvement, that sort of thing. Um, even when you start talking about Buffalo, it's far more, you know, how'd you find it, and, and much less of... Um, you know, anything that, that a government official would really be worried about. So there's there's that issue. Um, you can also say, as many have, that it's, you know, why did you tape it? You taped it for the CIA. They wanted to know what was going on. And, and we've talked a lot about whether that makes sense or not. But a couple of things, and we're just trying to stick to the tapes now. And again, as I mentioned earlier, they don't talk about the CIA. So it's hard to say it was for the CIA when they're not talking about them. And the stuff that they are talking about, the CIA wouldn't have cared less about. So that becomes um, problematic. You also wonder if, um, you know, for both of these, if, you know, if it's Mexican government officials and they really, really wanted to Find out what Camarena knew. Couldn't they find somebody better to do the interrogation? Uh, and the same with the CIA. Even as even if you think for a minute that that Felix came and did some investigation or some questioning, at some point he left, and they kept on taping. So you know, I, I don't. I, it just doesn't. It's hard to get a grasp on that. Either one of those elements would be the ones that they were taping it for. Eventually I came to think and, and again this is this is in my book uh and and discuss maybe in, in a little bit more detail, but maybe it's not that difficult. Let's assume that at the house, um at Lope de Vega, when Cameron is being interrogated, when he's on the way there or he's just gotten there, you've got Javier Barber Hernandez, who's an attorney. You've got several former police officials, in you know, in one shape or form. You've got Lopez Romero. You've got Gadoa. You've got El Sami. You've got others. Um, maybe somebody just said. It might be good to get this on tape. Maybe it makes sense to keep a record of what this guy said. Um, and you can think of a couple of, of reasons for that, but two that are that you know seem easy, for lack of a better word, are one, maybe they'll he'll say something that's really really good, and you can use it later against somebody, whether it's against. The DEA, a government official, who knows, but maybe you get some information that's really valuable and you want to have a record of it. The other thing is, Carl Quintero wasn't going to stay in there. Let's assume he was there. Let's assume he asked some questions. Is he going to stay for all 36 hours of interrogation or however many hours there actually were? Of course not. I don't know if he had the mental capacity to do it in the first place, but in the second place... You know he was um <laughs> there there was a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, and a lot of women uh I think that that uh, his time and participation in the interrogation were probably uh a, a small portion of it, so maybe it was let's tape this for for caro let let's let's make sure that we have a record so that he can go back and and listen to it and know what was said. And and maybe it wasn't Carl, maybe it was Fonseca that they were doing it for. But you know, for for one of um one of the people who picked him up. And and maybe all of this analysis of, you know, God, there's gotta be a, a, a complex motivation behind it. I I do want to go back to the Mexican officials um for a moment. You know, the other thing that doesn't quite make sense is you have the allegation that all these officials ended up showing up at Lope de Vega while he was being interrogated, you know, Bartlett Diaz and Gardokia and everybody else. And if you were taping the interrogation for them, then why would they be there? Why risk being there um, if you were going to get the information anyways? I, I want to touch on one last thing um, as as we conclude here. And that goes back to the idea that there are some missing tapes, Um, and, and let's even assume that there are. The problem that has developed is that for some, those missing tapes, missing transcripts, the missing information can support all of the theories, all of the conspiracy theories. And that's especially true relating to the CIA. Oh, you know what? We we would have been able to prove that it was the CIA and that it was Felix Rodriguez if only the CIA hadn't destroyed one of the tapes or hidden one of the tapes <coughs> or whatever the case may be. You know, there's, there's the great line from, <coughs> excuse me, from the um the scientist carl sagan who says you know extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof and <clears throat> to me it's disingenuous and academically or intellectually dishonest to support a theory based on the possible existence of something out there that no one knows about. So it's not, keep in mind, it's not that somebody said, yep, I listened to the tapes, and it. they talked about the CIA, they asked questions about the CIA, or they asked questions about Bartlett Diaz, and then the tape disappeared. There's none of that. So all you have is a hypothesis... That something that might exist might also support your wild conspiracy theory. And I think you could use that as a piece. But as we talked about last week and the weeks prior, there has to be more than one data point that supports an allegation. There has to be more than the recollection, you know, 30 years later that, oh, this is actually this person, or this person actually was there, or yes, it was the CIA. Whatever the case may be, there has to be more than one data point, and the supporting evidence cannot be a tape that may or may not exist, that no one knows what it would say, even if it did exist. All right. That is a fairly short 40-minute breakdown of the interrogation tapes. Um, I, w- I want to make a pitch to people. Uh I could talk about this case for forever and probably end up well, but I really want to talk about things that are interesting to you. What are the topics relating to this case that are exciting for you that you have questions about? And you can email me. So you can email me um, at Llewellyn, that's L-U-E-L-L-E-N, uh, writing.com, or at gmail.com, Llewellyn writing. Jack Llewellyn is my website. Go on, post, give, ask me questions. Um, send comments. Send ideas. Tell me I've lost my freaking mind. Whatever the case may be, I, 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 would, I would appreciate it. And, and uh, I want you to know I'm working hard behind the scenes to keep these interesting um, which I guess presumes that some of them are, but also to make some more exciting and, and getting some guests that I keep um, promising we will have. So the interrogation tapes this week, next week is a surprise. Can't give it away, but we're we're for sure going to have one guest. May have more. May have some pre-recorded information too, and um, we're going to dive into another topic from. Uh, the last NARC that we touched upon a couple weeks ago, but haven't really uh, explored in great detail. So, if you want to be surprised, uh, and I think intrigued, come back next week, and until then, thanks for joining.